0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمد الشاكرين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل وسلّم وبارك على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها ونور البصار والضياء وعافية الأبدان والشفائها وصل الله وسلّم وبارك على سيدنا محمد today's subject dealing with a tide that has receded somewhat in later times a tide of new atheism, which has affected the minds and hearts of many Muslims, especially the diaspora living within the Western world who may come into contact and interact with different ideas and philosophies. It's essential on the Muslim Ulama to tackle this problem. And the subject by which, or the discipline by which an Alim, a scholar of the religion, tackles this subject of new atheism with, is a toolkit which is known as Ilmul Kalam, the science of theology, also known as natural theology, This is what has developed in the classical period Especially within the first five hundred years of Al-Islam The methodology of interacting with heresy Developed up until the time of Ibn Asakir Rahimahullah taala, Muhaddith Who described the Ilmul Al-Kalam of the Ahl Sunnah wal Al-Jama'ah As a rational tool which is utilized in order to deconstruct Any Heresy that may confront orthodoxy or orthodox Muslims. And Ilmul Kalam, the name itself is from Al Kalam, which is speech. The meaning of speech, the reason why the science of Al Kalam was referred to as Ilmul Kalam is because it involved interaction and articulation of one's belief. When you interact with a person with an opposing belief, it's an exchange of ideas and articulation of those ideas And in articulation is known as Al-Kalam So the science became known as Ilmu Al-Kalam But the basis of Muslim counter-arguments Is within the mind, the rational mind And this is why the very first chapter of the work starts with a quote from Sayyiduna Ali Karamallahu Wajahul Kareem In which Sayyiduna Ali radiyallahu an states there is nothing more debilitating than the lack of intellect. And I give numerous stories and anecdotes from Salafus Salihun the pious predecessors including Sayyiduna Ali One example is mentioned is al-mas'alatul mimbaria when Sayyiduna Ali was standing on the pulpit and a man walked into the masjid and he asked a question of inheritance laws and Sayyidun Ali gave a response impromptu showing the Safa the pure intellect of salafus Salihun, how they were able to respond to questions which became for later generations issues that demanded research or demanded thought. Those questions were badihi for the early generations. Badihi meaning what? That the the response to them, they would be able to give the response impromptu without any thinking Uh, The response is what they refer to as Badihi Which is that a person is able to give a response without any thinking This was Safa'ul Aql in the early period One story which I didn't mention in the book Was a man came to Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu And he said that a person left a will of 17 camels, 17 camels, and in the will he said one-ninth of the camels goes to one individual, one-third of the camels goes to another individual, and half of the camels go to another individual, and he said this is difficult to resolve because 17 cannot be divided in, in such a way. So Sayyidun Ali said, I will place my camel in the share, making it what 18 camels. And he said, one ninth of 18 is what two. So give two camels to one man. One third of 18 is what six. He said, give six to the other man. Half of 18 is what nine. Give nine to, camels to the other man. The remainder is what? One he said I'll take my camel back But he was he was able to give these responses Impromptu very quickly There, there are a few anecdotes I mentioned with regard to this And this is why Sayyiduna Umar Radiallahu ta'ala Anhu as narrated by Al-imam Al-Bayhaqi in Shu'ubul iman He said O oh, Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when we pass away, do we have our intellect and The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said yes So Sayyiduna Umar radiAllahu Ta'ala Anhu said then I will be able to respond to the angels meaning the angels of the questions al-munkar wa nakir." and the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam approved of this statement why? Because of the role of the intellect, that the intellect even has a role in the grave. When a person responds to those people who are found, who are questioned in the grave. So, the role of the intellect is mentioned that in the early generations, Salafus Salihun, their intellects, they had Safaul Aql, that those things which are theoretical for us were self-evident for them, that which would Require thinking for the likes of Sayyiduna Ali and Sayyiduna Umar عنهما, Those things were self-evident But then later generations become became lazy And with the inception of sectarianism With Al-Khawarij, when the Khawarij started in the time Of Sayyiduna Ali عنهم, The debates, the inception of debates between the Jamaat al Sahaba Ali Ridwan and the Khawarij started and the, the sectarian debate started and therefore the Ulama, they would write down the arguments and the rational arguments. But in the early period, this was simple, but later this developed as Ibn Asakir points out. So, Ilmul Kalam is not deficient or insufficient to counter new atheism. Now, new atheism is different to old Atheism. Old Atheism has its roots with the likes of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, uh, an, an analytic philosopher, Western philosopher, British English philosopher. Uh, he, 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 he was entrenched in the, uh, the ruling elite of this country, I meaning his family had roots within the ruling elite of this country, but you will notice that there are many quotes from Bertrand Russell mentioned in the book for reason, but that was old classical atheism. New atheism is more aggressive in its approach and it became more active post 9-11. So after 9-11 the Twin Towers were attacked, a movement grew against in the Western Hemisphere especially against religion. This picked up with the likes of Richard Dawkins uh, the zoologist from Oxford, and then uh, Christopher Hitchens as well as Daniel Dennett and the likes of S- Lawrence Krauss and they st- wrote popular works in order to d- defeat religion on the back of 9-11 and the summary of their arguments was that Islam because the arguments Were mainly opposed to Islam or tackling Islam the argument was summarized as Islam is a homophobic anti-Jewish or anti-semitic violent misogynistic religion this is the summary of the arguments but these arguments many of them fall into what we know as fallacies logical fallacies fallacies which I give a list of 15 or so fallacies at the end of chapter one. Those fallacies can be anything from quoting a part of the Quran and not quoting it in its entire context. Like the verses of Al Jihad, the verses that relate to Al Jihad, quoting those verses without quoting the verses which uh, inform us with regard to dealings with Christians and Jews living uh, alongside Christians and Jews and minorities how minorities are treated in Muslim lands As is mentioned in the time of Sayyiduna Umar ta'ala anhu, When he entered the city of Jerusalem And he saw Christi- Christian beggars, blind beggars Begging on the roads And he said why are they begging on the roads? They said they are Christian old men who have become blind Sayyiduna Umar And said have them removed from begging and ensure that they have a pension why we do not take jizya from them in their youth when they are healthy and leave them to rot on the roads when they are old this was the justice of al-islam so the arguments of new atheism were packaged with a rhetoric against islam mainly against sharia law mainly against sharia law so the, the, the arguments against Sharia law were, "Why are women? Why do women need to wear hijab?" The, these kind of arguments are tackled in chapter six: inheritance laws, uh, amputation of the uh, hands for theft, stoning of the adulter. These are the incendiary, emotional arguments of new atheism. But the core arguments, as you move backwards, you find arguments from the angle of science. So initially, the emotional incendiary arguments start from Sharia law, but then it moves on to science. But if you go into more depth, the arguments will move into philosophy, Uh, the, uh, the range of philosophy and the scope of philosophy in our daily lives, different philosophies like utilitarianism, materialism, all these various philosophies, then when you go back, the basis of the entire argument between the belief of God and the non belief in God is what is epistemology and even prior to epistemology is fitrah is the natural disposition of man. So this is going backwards. Sometimes the arguments will start with Sharia law or sometimes they can start from the very foundation, which is epistemology. What I mentioned with regard to epistemology is that the word is from episteme in the Greek, which is with regard to how to ascertain facts. How do we ascertain facts? Now, of course, the argument from fitra, from the natural disposition, starts firstly from the fact that natural man, like caveman paintings, if you look and observe at caveman paintings, personally, I believe even caveman paintings disprove human, the theory of human evolution from, com, with common origin with, with inferior species. Meaning, what Darwinism proposes is that we share a common origin from inferior species. I believe that caveman paintings alone disprove that. Throughout the world, whenever you go in the world from France to different parts of the world, you find all these paintings it disproves uh, common origin because of the human mind meaning the development of the human mind is not actually discovered We would say the mind is undiscovered But natural man in his natural disposition only ever drew paintings of what hunting he, a man would have this earth open and he would attain his risk His sustenance going to hunt animals take the risk and he knew through his natural disposition that there is a Khaliq, a creator of this world who bears no resemblance to creation. This is the natural disposition. Then Shaytan placed the ideas in the minds of men that God may bear resemblance to some of the creation. And they drew figures and we know that through the history that as you see the development of from caveman paintings we go into a development of religious ideas of an anthropomorphic God and this of course answers the obscure question which people ask Okay, even if we believe in a God, how do you know the, the God of an Islam is the truthful God? Or how do you know Islam is the actual truthful religion? The response is very clear That man in his natural disposition Believed with his fitra, with his fitrah that there is a divine creator who created everything for him and all man would be meaning in that time there was no revelation of sharia there was no sharia law as developed as at, as it is now so man had very little sharia in the early stages as revelation came down the sharia developed and changed but the belief the core belief never changed with time but then we move a, a step higher than uh, than natural disposition and we move on to epistemology. How do we ascertain facts? In summary, if I had to summarize earlier works of Al Kalam, like Sharh al Aqa'id of Imam Sa'ad al din al ta'ala, uh, classical works, even the works of Imam al Baydawi and others, uh, Sayyid al Sharif al Jurjani, uh, Adududud din al Iji, all these mutakallimin from the early period. Uh, and the likes of uh, Al-Imam Al-Amidi and others. The summary of that would be that we ascertain facts from three things. One is our five senses. That from our sound five senses, we ascertain facts. And the early Greeks, they had groups from amongst them. In the Greek Hellenistic philosophies, they had ideas. Where they believed that you cannot ascertain facts from the five senses. So they denied this. And in the books of Kalam they mentioned them, like Sufastaiyah and Al indiya and Allah adriya These were early Greek philosophers who believed you can never ascertain facts and you are always doubting and you doubt the fact that you are doubting. A skepticism. This skepticism was filtered down later. Into the thought and philosophy of the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who lived in the 1700s. David Hume <laughs> took his ideas from those early Greek philosophers and developed them, where he devel- developed an idea of mitigated skepticism. What is mitigated skepticism? Not total skepticism, but skepticism to a point that you doubt everything and the certainty of everything. Then he developed an idea which was the only matters of fact you can ascertain is what you have from sense perception and whatever you form in the mind which he referred to as relations of ideas this relations of ideas is only the information which you ascertain from sense perception but this idea of doubting your senses was taken from the Greek philosophers so what did the Mutakallimeen say? they said حقائق الأشياء they said the realities of things is something established, meaning the reality of the firmness of this table, the reality of drinking water, which quenches your thirst, the reality of observing something or hearing something. All of these are realities. So in Islamic epistemology, which is actually taken from the Quran, which is actually taken uh, from Al-Quran al Karim, the senses are something which we rely on to ascertain facts. And then Imam Saaduddin al-Taftazani says, there is no actual way of debating these people because then they say, we are doubting and we are doubting the fact that we are doubting. You can never debate these type of people. They like the characters you have in London in Hyde Park, very impossible to debate. So he said the only way is light them burn them. And when they are burning, And by the way, I'm not approving of this, just for your Masjid uh, uh, guidelines. He says this, he says, when you burn them, when they feel the pain of fire, then ask them, are they burning or not? So he says, there's no way of debating them. But in Islam, that the realities of things is something known. Secondly, you have something which is known as a rational judgment. A rational judgment is that judgment that is purely from the mind without any recourse to the external senses like if I say to you two is half of four even a person who is born blind and deaf and if you communicate with him through touch he will be able to comprehend when you impart the knowledge of two is half of four He will be able to comprehend that this is what we refer to as purely rational judgment purely rational judgments. Now, Western philosophy has always been at loggerheads within themselves, the continental philosophers and other philosophers, whether you can have a purely rational judgments or not. A group of them would say even rational judgments are actually from the external realm. They would not admit that there are purely rational judgments. But how you refute this is that if there is an individual who takes his Facts from the external realm, realm, but he will still uh, if there is a person who has no recourse to the external realm He will still be able to give rational judgments like if I say to him That there can never be something moving and being still motionless at the same time It's a contradiction of terms a person can understand this or if I say to him the part is smaller than the whole the part is smaller than the whole with the whole of something. The part of it is smaller. This is a rational judgment. It doesn't necessarily the person doesn't need to refer to his senses. The third type of knowledge is what we refer to as mass transmission. Tawatur. Mass transmission is for instance, if I say to you, there is a city known as the city of Paris. And I say to you, how many of you have not been to Paris, many of you will place your hands up. But if I say to you, are you certain that Paris exists? The vast majority of people will place their hands up that they are certain with regard to the existence of Paris. But how do they know Paris exists if they have not observed Paris with their senses? They have not deemed Paris as existing with their rational judgment but they know Paris exists through what mass transmission. People have informed them. They have met people who have been to Paris, and it has reached them through mass transmission. This is the summary of how we ascertain facts. Then it's essential to know after this, that the rational judgment is three types. There are those rational thing, those things which the mind deems as possible. Those things which the mind deems as impossible and those things which the mind deems as necessary. So if I say to you, it's possible a mountain of rubies exists, the mind alone would say yes. If a mountain of rubies existed, it's possible. Or if I say to you that it's possible for a mountain of Mercury to exist, you will know from the mind that it's possible for that to exist a mountain of Mercury. But likewise, the mind will give the judgment that it's impossible for a square triangle to exist. Because the very meaning of rationally impossible is the combination of words which make no sense. If I say to you something is moving and still at the same time, a paradoxical state, the mind will give the judgment that this paradoxical state is an impossibility. That something is moving and still at the same time. This is rational judgments of possibility, impossibility, and then necessary Uh, The necessary judgments are judgments like if I say to you That uh, the firstly for us as theists would be the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is necessary But of course atheists would deny this so this is where we enter the discussion with atheists But aside from these uh, three methods of ascertaining facts, which were what the sensory perception, the rational judgment, mass transmission. Sometimes you may have a combination of both. Something can be rational and attained through sensory perception, like scientific experimentation. In science, they experiment with various materials. They check the effect of certain materials, for instance, when paracetamol, may have been tested for the first time. They tested this through laboratories and patients and then they realized the effects and this leads impart some type of certainty. So this is the Islamic method of what we refer to as epistemology the Islamic epistemology, which is covered in chapter 2 of the book and some of the people found this the most difficult chapter to comprehend. Why? Because it relates to abstract concepts. For instance, in the book I mentioned, you can have something existing which causes the non-existence of another thing. And they found that too abstract. But then I say, if you have food in the stomach, food exists in the stomach, it does away with hunger. Yes? And then I say, the absence of something, causes something. Like the absence of food, brings about hunger so there are these type of judgments what else i mention is the method of signification and this was introduced by the arabs now there is a common misconception amongst people that the muslims in the bani abbas period during the Abbasi caliphate one of the khulafa commanded the scholars of language and philosophy to translate the hellenistic greek Texts, the philosophy te- works into Arabic. They were translated into Arabic. Many people think that Muslims simply adopted philosophical works and did not contribute or critique, analytically critique those works. This is incorrect. The Muslims contributed to those works and critiqued them. One of the contributions, Arab contributions, to the early works of philosophy was the idea of Dalalat which is signification, the idea of signification. And what they said is that signification has two aspects. One is linguistical signification. Like if I say to you, you hear someone coughing behind a door, you know that there is someone standing behind the door, but there is non-linguistical signification. Like you see smoke from afar, you will know that the smoke signifies fire. This is the method of signification and they mention many types of signification, but it is essential to have a discussion. A thought experiment which I mentioned is that if you are flying over an island, while you are flying over an island, you see in a panoramic view, bird's eye view, you see S SOS written in stones when you see SOS written in stones you will conclude the natural conclusion of the mind would be what that there is a person or persons stranded on this island who have with stones written out the words SOS this is method of signification now if the likeness of the atheist is that the atheist is the person on the airplane who tells you that you are mistaken. Why are you mistaken? You are mistaken because he says the form, the formulating of SOS with stones was a natural sequence, the result of nature. This is the likeness of an atheist. So then he demands from you proof that there was a person on this island who had written out the words SOS. Likewise, if you are walking on the street and you observe smoke, And you believe it is urgent a matter of urgency that you phone a fire brigade. Why? Because you believe that a fire has started uh, Near the vicinity and someone tells you do not call a fire brigade The smoke is a natural result of something else. Even if you see flames, you know that something is burning Or the third example, which is mentioned you enter a city or a town and you observe crosses on the houses, crucifix, you will conclude that the majority of the denizens, the residents of that town or city are what? Christians. But your friend, your, the passenger with you tells you, you have lost your mind. What, you tell him, look, by signification, I know that they are Christians. He tells you, give me a proof. Prove to me that there is Christians residing in the in the town, even though you have pointed out that something signifies to this now, at the end of chapter two, I mention the underlying foundations of modern atheism and old atheism. You have philosophies like materialism. now materialism should not be mistaken or misconstrued with economic materialism, economic materialism is uh, Capitalism the gain of material wealth what I mean by materialism philosophical materialism is The belief that matter and physical entities is all that exists. There is nothing beyond this physical entity this physical world This is philosophical materialism. So the belief that the physicality or material The material universe is all that exists is one of the underlying foundations of new atheism. Another philosophy is utilitarianism that benefit what they believe is benefit as long as something is beneficial or overall benefits everyone. It justifies the undertakings, social undertakings that we we may do anything that we do. This is utilitarianism. Likewise. Skepticism and the skepticism is rooted in the groups like the Vienna Circle and uh, David Hume whom I referenced earlier and other philosophers who doubted everything And they believed the only things we know is through sense experience or relations of ideas So I give a conclusion some of the underlying philosophies that are at the bedrock of new atheism It's essential for us to know this that when we engage with, with atheist arguments, we know f- where are they drawing their water from? Where are they drawing their arguments from? There is a pool of resource information which they are drawing or the, the resource trickles down the way of thinking trickles down to them. So then we enter to the actual arguments for the existence of a divine creator. Now, the arguments for a divine creator, what comes to mind is Al Imam Fakhruddin Al Razi, Ta'ala whose name was Umar bin Al Khatib. They would refer to him as Umar bin Al Khatib, the son of Al Khatib. His father was a Khatib. So they would refer to him Umar bin Al Khatib. He was from Ray. And anyone who's from Ray, they refer to him as Al Razi, Fakhruddin Al Razi. <coughs> the pride of Islam, one of the ulama and theologians while debating a Christian priest he mentioned a rule to the Christian priest what was the rule the rule is wherever the Dalil is found you find the madlul what does this mean uh, if I say to you what is the proof of uh, the if someone says to a Christian what is the proof that Jesus is God he says in response that Jesus resurrected the dead. So this would mean that anyone who resurrects the dead would have to be God. Wherever the Dalil is found, the Madlul is found. So the he, he, the Christian agreed to the rule. But Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi said, I had to repeat this numerous times to him in order for him to understand this rule. This is how rational arguments are. When he understood, I said to him, what is the dalil for Jesus being God? He said, Jesus resurrected the dead. And in response to this, Imam Fakhruddin Razi said that such and such Nabi also did similar type of miracles like Musa A.S., threw down his staff and the staff, which is lifeless became full of life, a snake. Therefore, you would have to believe that Musa A.S. is God. The second Rule which Al-Imam Fakhruddin al Razi mentioned to this priest is absence of dalil does not always entail absence of madlul. Meaning, sometimes something may be true, but you say to someone, Give me a proof, and the person is unable to respond, it doesn't mean that the argument is false. Absence of dalil does not always entail madlul, uh, the absence of madlul. So he said, Imam Fakhreddin al-Razi, how he utilised this argument. He said, the absence of other people not giving life to the dead, anyone can claim regarding animals or anything else that they are God Almighty also. And if someone says, where's the Dalil? I would say there's an absence of Dalil, but I believe this, meaning it's a false fallacious argument. But the point being that Sometimes when you encounter atheists, they say give us a decisive argument that would convince them that a God exists And then a a common fallacy also is which atheists mention and that fallacy is they say You Muslims believe in one God But you reject all the other gods and we say yes They say we are the same as you Except we reject one extra God, which is your God Yes, so this argument initially may sound very good very appealing but the reality is that the mind and the natural disposition would conclude that there is one God and a multiplicity of gods is a rational uh, irrational argument to believe in a multiplicity of gods that numerous gods exist and believing in no God is also irrational. This is why I mentioned at the beginning that we have natural disposition and from natural disposition A person will conclude that there is one God who bears no re- similarity But then human beings invent ideas for their God by adding anthropomorphic constructs A resemblance of God to creation Because as Abdul Rahman bin al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, he points out, he says Human beings are so habitual with the material world that they can never understand transcendent concepts We are so habitual in the material world This is why you will notice Much of the public is more accustomed to fiqh discussions Than aqeedah discussions Meaning if if a lecture was given on wudu And ghusl bathing And how to pray People are more attuned into paying attention. Why? because they do this regularly in the material world but when the discussion is abstract or it involves transcendent concepts it involves more thinking and they are not habitual in those things they would need to think more so the belief that there is a cause of the universe is is the main starting point for us that the universe has an inception, a cause and of course, uh, another common fallacy among atheists is that they say that if God caused everything, then who caused God and the Messenger of Allah وسلم, mentioned this in a Hadith that Shaitan approaches someone while he is praying and places the doubt in his mind that if Allah made everything, then who created Allah? But many of you should pick up on the fallacy. The fallacy is that when we say everything has a cause, we mean the contingent accidental world around us. What do I mean by contingent? The word contingent in Arabic is al-huduth. The meaning of al-huduth, the translation is contingent. But what is the meaning? The meaning is al-wujud ba al-adam, which is existence after non-existence. So anything that had no existence and it came into existence ex nihilo meaning from nothing then that thing is what contingent the entire universe the observable universe around us is contingent in its nature and therefore must have a cause so the question then comes about if God is the cause or the first cause must have a cause also this is the counter question but what is the fallacy in the argument The fallacy in the argument is that we said everything contingent has a first cause. So the first cause must be non-contingent, meaning necessary, self-subsistent. So this argument is a fallacy for, for anyone to say, if everything in the universe has a cause, then the cause also has a cause. And it would lead to another absurd argument, which is continuous regression, which is that then that cause must have a cause and that cause must have a cause and that cause must have a cause uh, ad infinitum to no end and this is a fallacy in itself so this in arabic is known as tasalsul and tasalsul is muhal aqlan which is what rationally impossible what we state as being what rationally impossible the question after this is how do we know as some scientists attempted to prove like Stephen Hawking who died attempting to make something he termed as being what M theory. So he was the author of uh, the famous popular work a brief history of time a very good read a very good book but then he confused his readers at the end when he said he mentioned the statement the mind of God so he left these conf- the readers in confusion whether he's a theist or atheist. Afterwards, he wrote another book in which he made himself clear that he is actually an atheist. But he attempted all his life to form something known as M-theory, which was the theory of everything, a combination of Einstein's theory of relativity and uh, the. Uh, the Uh, theory, uh, uh, M-theory was a combination of every theory which was non-compatible. So from Einstein's theory of relativity all uh, uh, and uh, other theories as well, which is mentioned in his book. I also covered this in my book, but What did he conclude with? He concluded in in his second book that the universe the galaxies in the universe that we observe is part of a multiverse, which is that the multiverse at regular intervals, makes new galaxies and universes. But this actually does not resolve the question. It leads to continuous regression. This is actual continuous regression, because the multiverse in effect, is then what contingent in nature, the multiverse itself. And this leads to tasalsul, which is what a rational absurdity, a rational impossibility. It's not the same as saying that there is an uncaused cause for the universe, a self-subsistent cause of the universe. It's not the same. Now, even if someone acknowledges that the universe has a cause, and many younger people they ask with regard to the Big Bang Theory, uh, the exact time of the expanding universe is estimated to be around 13.47 billion years ago. Does this contradict our religion? The answer is no. In fact, proves and demonstrates the premise of our argument that there is an inception of the universe, an inception point and there will be an end to the universe, which is known as the big crunch. So this entails the contingent nature of the universe And there is a cause of the universe, but this cause of the universe, the argument then is how Meaning, remember one thing with in discussion with atheists when one point is demonstrated. The argument will move to the the natural process is that the argument argument moves to the next step. The argument is how do you know these attributes of this God? What you refer to as the first cause of the universe? We would say that there, there are many arguments, but uh, due to constriction, I will mention one which is what determines the way things are, what determines the way things are. Meaning if I said to you, what determines your height, your color, your weight, aside from bad diet, your um, everything about you. What determines this the length of your arms? Meaning it could have been that one arm is longer than the other arm, but the arms grow proportionately. What determines all of these factors? The response is nature that nature determines this. But is this response correct? The answer is scientifically the response is correct. Scientifically because what is science? Science is a description. Of natural processes of the universe around us or everything around us, whatever we can investigate through uh, through uh, the scientific method But if someone says nature Determines this philosophically or theologically. This is incorrect Because nature is only a description of the laws around us Meaning what determines for Zaid to grow to six foot two, for his arms to be proportionate, for his legs to be proportionate, for him to have two eyes, for him to have a mind that works. If someone says nature, that's a contradiction, because nature is only a description of the interaction of physical nature, of physical entities that exist around us. Nature is only a description, but but what is the determining factor? Now, if someone is obstinate and they say nature we say to them that which you are Stating as being nature we refer to as, uh, as allah and When you say nature determines this we say this in term In turn means that nature has something known as al qudra what is Al-Qudra? power Which we refer to as divine power likewise what you refer to as nature, we would determine that it has al irada, which is will Which you refer to uh, uh, nature as having will we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a will So the reality is everything around us In fact is what an eff- Effectuated by the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And it signifies to a creator meaning By observing the creation around us We know that the creation signifies the divine creator and his divine attributes So uh, when we see someone dying We know that there is someone who has created death He's al Mumit. When we see a child being uh, given life after 42 days or thereabouts in in the womb of a, a mother we know that there is Al the one who gives life When we see someone being cured of an illness We know there is a Shafi the one who gives a cure So the, uh, these are what the divine names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Remember there is a dis- distinction between sifatul that and Sifatul-Afaal sifatul that. Are the divine attributes by which Allah subhanahu wa taala is not described with their opposites. So we know Allah subhanahu wa taala as divine power, but you cannot say Allah subhanahu wa taala is powerless. We know Allah subhanahu wa as al-hayatu, divine life, but you cannot say Allah subhanahu wa taala is dead. We say Allah subhanahu wa taala has al-ilm, knowledge. But We Cannot Say Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'Ala Is Described With Al Jahl Ignorance. These Are Known As What Sifatul That Then You Have uh, Those Attributes Which Are Sifatul Asma, The Description Of What The Names Of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'Ala Where Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'Ala Is Described With The Opposites. So We Say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives life, al-muhyi, but he is also the one who gives death, al-mumit. He is the one who raises al-rafi, but he is also the one who lowers al-khafid. Now, after this, the discussion goes on to objections, meaning if someone, if he looks into his fitrah and he accepts, yes, there is someone who determined for me to exist, who determines for me to be proportioned the way I am. Otherwise, a human being would be like a ball, equal in all diameters, equal in all directions. But no, someone has determined for him to be shaped. Ahsanul Khaliqeen, meaning the most best of what create, creators. Al Musawwir, the one who gives form. These are why, this is why the names of Allah mentioned in Al-Quranul Kareem for us to reflect on. But even after accepting this some people they go on to the counter objections. The counter objections will be classified into three categories. Category number one is what I term in chapter four as being philosophical sundries and the problem of evil. Philosophical sundries and the problem of evil meaning philosophical objections. Uh, chapter number five covers science and scientific objections and chapter number six covers the preservation of the Quran and the Sunnah and objections to the Sharia law. Some people have varying doubts ranging from topic to topic, but the first one which I mentioned, which is philosophical sundries and doubts relating to the problem of evil are Objections like the following which many of you may have heard some of you may have not heard this they sometimes are simple objections like Can God Almighty create a boulder so huge that he himself cannot alternately Lift the boulder. How do you respond to such an objection? Now the objection to some people may sound very difficult But the objection is very easy to respond to Firstly the rule is that the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only relates to the possible Only relates to that which is possible Because the very meaning of impossible is conjoining between two contradictions This is a contradiction in turn that the questioner is asking can God Almighty make himself powerless now the response is very simple, the divine will and the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only relate to that which is possible, simple, but then there are other objections in the book, one of them, you'll be surprised how many people bring up these objections, but sometimes in discussion, muhawara with the atheist, when the objection is answered, they move on to another objection. Even if the objection is uh, a, a sufficient response is given, but one objection which was found is why does God Almighty create us in the first place? Meaning if he is all merciful, would it not have been better for us not to exist? than God Almighty knowing that we will do certain sins and then we will burn in hell forever for disbelief. The response again, the question may seem very difficult, but I gave it some thought and the response is very simple. Firstly, God Almighty created within us two faculties that make us distinct from the animal kingdom. What are they? Firstly, the intellect, the mind, and second the free will the free will of making conscientious ob- uh, objections and choices <coughs> these two gifts from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala outweigh non-existence that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bringing us into existence is outweighed by these two favors of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but even after this The people who are promised The punishment in hellfire They must fulfill ten conditions How many conditions? Ten conditions, which are mentioned These are the conditions of taklif The legal obligation What are they? One is intellect Number two is maturity That the person reaches age of maturity Number three Absence of intoxication Uh, What do I mean by this? Imagine there is a non-muslim who never comes in interaction with Muslims He drinks alcohol and then he interacts with the Muslim and then he goes home and he regains sobriety That interaction doesn't count. Why because he was intoxicated at the time likewise the correct tenets of faith reaching the person So a person who's living isolated or even within Muslims, but the tenets of faith never reach him or the person being sound of senses. his hearing works. His eyesight works. He's able to communicate and understand and even then being able to understand what is being conveyed because there are some people who may not be able to comprehend what is being conveyed to them. So once all of these conditions of taklif are met, this favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the person of intellect and free will, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has only demanded one thing. What is that thing that you submit and acknowledge this favor? This is known as ubudiya, servitude, that you submit and acknowledge this favor. But at this point, The people ask another, they ask, they object further, they say, would it not have been better, doesn't it contradict him being all merciful for him to place people in eternity in hellfire? Now, how I respond to that, inshallah, we will continue in the second segment. To continue from where we left off. The question was with regard to the divine mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the question the atheists ask and propose is that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is arhamur rahi, the most merciful of the ones who are merciful, then why does he create such a creation that burns in hell for eternity? Does this not oppose his mercy? Now, there's a few flaws in the question. One is, that the divine names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, the effect of the Rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is for those whom Allah wills his mercy. So the the meaning is Arhamur Rahimeen with the ones whom he wills to be ar Rahimeen with, meaning Iradatullah the Rahma of Allah is in accordance with His Divine Will. Otherwise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he wills, he punishes someone like the name, one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Muntaqim, the one who avenges, the one who punishes. So this is the first flaw. Secondly, as I mentioned that the favor of Al-Aqd, intellect and free will is a greater favor than non-existence. That for someone not to exist, it's a greater favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have given that person intellect and free will. What is the proof of this? The proof of this is the punishment for murder. Why is someone punished for murder? That if someone murders another soul, he has no right to do this. He takes away the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is life, free will and intellect. Therefore, the action of murder is punishable. Therefore, we understand that intellect, free will and life is a favor from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Thirdly, human beings have free will because they have free will and what we refer to as al kasb which is acquirement of actions, acquisition of good and bad with acquisition of good and bad. A human being makes the choice. Of going to hell or paradise Be- Meaning after the 10 Shara'it the conditions of taklif After all these conditions are met The person decides to do those actions which are prohibited by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Acquisition of those actions which are prohibited by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Kasb Which is referred to as earning particular deeds lands that person in hellfire meaning the person makes that choice not recognizing the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created The favor of life and intellect within the individual All that was demanded from the individual Was to acknowledge this favor So what I did in chapter 4 uh, Which I mentioned As A thought experiment was a thought experiment Relating to baby Hitler because What happened was that the person who objected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creating human beings who would end up in Alpha was not satisfied with that uh, response. So, in the book, I mention a thought experiment which is 4.21 on page 192 where I mentioned I'll read out the passage to you this is an experiment in thinking for the one who makes the previous objection meaning the objection I've just mentioned you are transported back in time via a time machine to Austria the date is 20th of April and the year is 1889 You are taken to baby Hitler who has just been born and you are given the option of killing him to prevent all the dreadful evil he will commit in the future. You have full knowledge that this life will be the cause of World War II and the Holocaust and innumerable other crimes against humanity. So This is the choice. So now the person has a choice to allow this child to live with free will life and intellect or to take this away. You are presented with the choice of ending his life and preventing the subsequent free will and intellect Hitler will develop in his adult life by which he will carry out his war crimes. What do you do? Do you allow him to live and carry out his choices in the full knowledge of what he will do or do you kill him? depriving this one child of life and Saving others from his evil in the foreseen future. So uh, The response is whichever choice you make You cannot object to God how? If you choose the option to take his life then you could never object when God takes away life and destroys punishes causes pestilence and diseases blindness allows humans to carry out their crimes and innumerable other things. So if you allow him to live, you can never object to Allah. When Allah creates disasters and Allah creates pestilence and earthquakes, because if you with your limited knowledge can make such a choice, then what of the one who has divine all everlasting knowledge? So then the thought experiment response, if you would kill the baby Hitler solely on the strength of your limited human knowledge, then it should be only too easy to imagine what God does and wills due to his divine wisdom and eternal knowledge. The second option that of allowing baby Hitler to live for the fact that he has not actually done anything at that given moment and is entitled to life, free will and intellect. And despite knowing what he will do with his free will, there is no way you could object to God creating humans with life, free will, intellect and many other favors knowing that they will misuse those favors and end up in hell by choice. So whether you allow baby Hitler to live or whether you kill baby Hitler, both ways you cannot object to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I believe this response, uh, of course, the former Muslim who brought up this response, uh, this objection was from London, from your city. And of course, it's the task of the ulama to respond. Meaning these people, they have, because the Imam was saying to me that the people here are not familiarized with such discussions. But I believe today we live in a globalized world where everyone has access to information. And because they have access to information, they access numerous times a day these type of objections. And it's essential, a fard on ulama to respond to these objections. Because of this objection, there are many people who lost their faith. Some of them are interacted with. Some Alhamdulillah have been brought back to the fold of islam yes so and that is the purpose of this discussion that is the purpose of the book to bring them back into the fold of al-islam because they are exposed to these arguments as I mentioned the person who brought this objection of, he's from London he left the fold of islam so what I did when I wrote this book I personally sent him the book and I contacted him also So he has the book. He's not responded as of yet, but some of the people have and some of them re-entered the fold of Islam because of this response. So then after this on page 193 and 4.22, I cover also why does God burn the unbelievers in hell for eternity? And this is a lengthy response that I give. But the summary of the response is that those who fulfill the 10 conditions of taqlif, they are the ones who are punished forever, forever, for eternity. But there are two additional things. One is that a punishment is in accordance with the crime, the type of crime, the nature of the crime. So if the crime is limited in scope, then the punishment is also limited. If someone drinks alcohol, they are punished for a limited amount of time because Intoxication only lasts a few hours So they are punished for a limited amount of time But when someone decides to disbelieve If they live on earth forever They will always remain a disbeliever An unbeliever And therefore are punished In hellfire for eternity But a second Aspect of this is what the Quran Al-Quran al Kareem points out to us. That if they were returned back to earth, the disbelievers after seeing all the punishment, after seeing the day of judgment, seeing the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if they were returned back to earth, they will still remain as disbelievers. These are the type of people who are punished. And this is only after the 10 conditions of taqlif is met. The 10 Conditions of Taklif as I mentioned, sometimes you may have a non-Muslim who never interacts with Muslims and then he comes across information on Islam, adopts Islam with the heart but never is in a situation where he would have to utter the statement of faith because he never interacts with anyone and the subject is never brought up and he dies outwardly he died as a kafir we do not pray salatul janazah we do not do dua for him but he is al-kafir the nas a disbeliever according to the people but he is al-mu'min inda Allah, because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that he believed and he was never in a situation where he needed to utter his faith but you may have a muslim who is outwardly a muslim A young person who goes to his RS studies class is exposed to various ideas, becomes doubtful of his faith and then denounces Islam, but is too frightened of his community in order to denounce Islam openly. So these are the type of youth that they tell their parents they are fasting in the month of Ramadan, but then they go to McDonald's, eat Haram and they disbelieve. This is a common uh, problem. But that person is outwardly Muslim. He dies as a disbeliever, inwardly, but outwardly he has died as a believer. So the the Salatul Janaza is prayed. The supplication is done for him. He's a Muslim in the Nas. People think he is Muslim, but Al-Kafir, a disbeliever with Allah. This is why when we say someone people are kufar or disbelievers, this is an outward judgment based in this worldly life. But the reality haqaiq, the realities are only known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but there is a, another question which is asked, how can we fathom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punishes people for eternity by burning their skin? So I responded to this by saying, uh, first the question is, is not the unbearable punishment in hell totally unnecessary? Such a misunderstanding is based on the idea that the human is punished in the next life with a body similar to the body he had on earth when in reality the Quran and the prophetic reports mention that the human bodies will be totally different and Accord with the dimensions of the realm of the afterlife Any attempt to create an analogy with our earthly bodies is to ba- is bound to be limited If bodily dimensions and characteristics of the bodies in the hereafter are different It implies too that they are Meet for the punishment in accordance with the nature of the crime As punishment on earth are difficult Punishments on earth are difficult, but still endurable Within the measure of the crime. So too are bodies in the afterlife If a human body can stay in a prison hell uh, cell in this life Desirable or not So too can the body in the hereafter which can stay in hell for the crime committed It is not something to enjoy Any more than a life sentence for murder is on earth or for any other crimes Therefore when reading about hell it should always be kept in mind that the realities and dimensions of those realms are different from what we are accustomed to on earth and the punishment is proportionate to that realm. Conversely, the same is true regarding paradise and its enjoyments. And of course, some people read this passage and they said, we have not found this in previous books, but the the point is that the response is not incorrect. That if someone says, how can we fathom eternal punishment in that realm? The response is that the bodies will be in proportion to that realm. Like someone can uh, be punished on earth. The punish, no punishment is ever desirable, but the punishment is endured. Likewise, the people in hell, their bodies will be punished accordingly. In one hadith, it states the dimensions are such that one tooth of a person in hell is the size of Uhud. Why? Because the body is in a proportion with the punishments that are given. So, chapter 4 covers uh, many other aspects. One is regarding an imperfect world. So, people say, okay, the divine action of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of creating everything is understood, but why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create an imperfect world? Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created three realms. One realm is perfect, which which is paradise. One realm contains imperfections, which is hellfire. And the third realm, which is this contains both perfections and imperfections. And while in this imperfect world, if the world was perfect and everything was perfection, then at the time of death, we would not want to leave the world. We would become attached. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with His divine wisdom created imperfections in this realm so we do not become attached to this world and we desire to go back to Him. If this world had perfections, then no one would want to desire to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even the imperfections are insignificant with the total perfection. The similitude of those people who object. To the perfect universe created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the similitude of a man who goes into a room, he observes the perfection of the room, and then he sees a nail that is hammered into the wall and he sees no use for the nail. And then he says, This nail has no use. Therefore, the entire room has not been created, it has not been constructed by an architect. The entire room is an accident. So what atheists do is they find certain imperfections of design and therefore they say oh, what is conceived as being imperfections and they say therefore the universe is not designed and not created by a designer, but the imperfections. Firstly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fa'alu lima the doer of what he wills. Also, la yus'alu amma yaf'alu, wahum yus'alun. He is not questioned regarding what he does, but they are questioned. Likewise, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us that perhaps asa tuhibbu shay'an that you like something, wahu that it is what bad for you. It is bad. Meaning, and conversely, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says perhaps you dislike something and it is good for you. Wallahu yalamu wa antum la Meaning, the ilm of Allah is beyond what we know. Allah knows and you do not know. Then, uh, the chapter relating to science and miracles, and I'm sure that some, many of our questions will relate also to that subject. There are some things which uh, I wanted to cover with regard to uh, the Sharia law that there are many segments that have been mentioned in Chapter 6 relating to Sharia law. Uh, With Sharia law there were the punishments that were mentioned the punishments of amputation uh, jihad so there is a segment on jihad explaining the fact uh, with regard to the legislation of al jihad and its scope Slavery, Slavery in Islam. Now this slavery issue this is covered on page 319, Slavery. This slavery issue, when this movement started Black, uh, Black Lives Matter, someone attempted to deflect attention from the ruling elite to the, to the Muslims by saying that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam was a slave owner This was a deflection But these truncated arguments Are full of imprecision And facts which are not accurate Yes, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did buy slaves But what they didn't mention He bought 63 slaves in his life One for every year of his life Yet, he freed all 63 because he bought them in order to free them. So the Messenger of Allah would go out his way to buy slaves and then free them like Sayyiduna Bilal whom he instructed Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq to go and buy Sayyiduna Bilal and free him. This was the purpose of uh, buying those slaves, purchasing those slaves. Secondly, what they do not mention Is that the verses on slavery were revealed in a society in which slavery was entrenched and therefore the Quran regulated slavery abolishing all forms of slavery except captives of war except which captives of war and then with captives of war that was an option for the Hakim An option for the ruler if he deems it necessary like in today's day and age when they keep people as prisoners in Guantanamo Bay the American forces they kept Muslims as prisoners in Guantanamo Bay throughout the day they do not see daylight for many hours are untreated uh, are treated unfairly were the slaves treated better by the Muslims the answer is yes Because the slaves must have one third of the day for recreation and rest. One third of the day where they follow the commands of the slave owner, but he can only impose work upon them, which is durable. He cannot place them under stress and duress work, which they are able to do. And then one third of the day for their sleep. Uh, Likewise, the slaves must eat the same quality of food as the owner. They must have the same quality of clothing as the owner. They can go to the Qadi to the judge to complain about the slave owner. This was prisoners of war. So this rather than taking them to a place like Guantanamo Bay, captives of war, they were taken and treated like this. But this is an option. It's not necessary. And even this was first abolished by the Muslims by whom Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih after he conquered uh, Constantinople he had slavery abolished throughout the Caliphate. The document abolishing slavery is found in Istanbul and also slavery of free people was banned by the Quran. Slavery was not a racial uh, subject in al islam they would have european slaves they mentioned like al rumi radiyallahu anhu sahabi was european there were european slaves there were asiatic slaves there were african slaves it was not a racial uh, the messenger of allah sallallahu one of the slaves he bought was a jewish young man that he bought so slavery was not limited to a race so this slavery issue then the issue of sex with slave girls, what happens is these type of objections are placed in the, youth, uh, the minds of the youngsters, thinking that Islam legislated rape of war captives. This is a common argument. So they, people come across these arguments in television. Is this correct? The answer is no. What happened is people already owned slaves. And some of the people, they would have sexual intercourse with those women. So the Quran revealed verses Mentioning consensual sex between the slave master and the slave girl is permitted But it's not referring to rape It's in context of people who are already carrying out those acts So this is what I mean by Islam regulating that but if the Hakim has Banned slavery which he has the right it is only used as an emergency law And then a person has a slave girl and they have consensual sex. She becomes like his wife in most things, meaning in all the and other things. But if she becomes pregnant and she gives birth, she is set free. She becomes his wife. So these are the arguments which are not mentioned by the likes of Tommy Robinson or these other big bigots when they mention these type of things like slavery in the Quran. Another important issue which was mentioned at the end of the slavery segment was the marriage of Sayyidatuna Aisha When young people hear about how did the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam marry such a young girl But what they do not mention is that sociologists and anthropologists, people who study society They tell you, you do not take modern standards and measure old civilizations with modern standards In Those Times Anyone Who Would Reach Puberty Was Deemed An Adult Because There Was Mental Maturity At The Same Time So What's The Proof Of This All Of Us Know That Salah Prayer Is Fard On Young Children When They Reach What? Puberty bulugh, Because They Are Deemed Adults And Young Girls Can Reach Puberty By Nine Years Old Young Boys Later But when they reach puberty, in those societies, they were mentally mature. But the ruler has an option. If he thinks that the young girls are not mentally mature, he can increase the age of consent later, like in today's day and age. The ruler has a right, the Qadi, is mentioned in the books of Fiqh, that if he deems the girl to be mentally immature, he has the right to increase the age of consent. So as the centuries have gone by, we have increased the age of consent because people do not live the way they lived in those societies. They lived in a way that many of the young girls when they reached puberty and they became women, they were mature mentally also. So they were deemed as women. But now you may have someone like you can. You would know this with your own sons. Many of you have sons when they reach puberty. You will say they are not ready for marriage Why because they are not mentally mature But if they lived a hundred years ago many of them would have matured mentally So the age of consent has increased. This is something to do with societal change But yet this argument is repeated again and again because in reality against Islam they have no strong arguments meaning Jihad is The the name of jihad is deformed to being terrorism Sharia law as barbarity And then they say That your prophet Had captives and slaves and had underage marriage These are the arguments But if you do away with this bias And The way they Angle the argument you will realize That there are no solid arguments against the existence of Allah because you go back to the original argument, which is what the actual existence of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Inshallah, we will open up now for questions and answers. Inshallah
1: I'll try and start with some quick questions, maybe just yes and no answers, or just uh, really quick ones, and then we we'll get into a bit longer. So the first question here: Are atheists allowed to go to religious places without wudu?
0: Yes, they are.
1: <laughs> And then next one, how do we know whether the people that told us about Islam were telling the truth?
0: How do we know that they did not lie or the fabrication? So this goes back to the science of Ilm al-Rijal, uh, which is a branch of Ilm al-Hadith, the science of Hadith, where we have Al-Jarh wa ta'adil, which is na- a narrator criticism and n- narrator accreditation. The science of Ilm al-Rijal is com- compiled in the books. Small Rijal Biographies extensive biographies of all the narrators. So narrators from the early century from the companions Ali Muridwan And after them like Sa'id bin Jubair Sa'id bin Musayyib All these tabi'een successors all their biographies are extensive and detailed. We even know where they were buried Their graves are still preserved So the details of those narrators is preserved and this is an essential science of Islam, which is عِلْمُ الْجَرْحِ وَالْتَعْدِيلِ
1: What do they say, and should the atheists say about death and after death? And related to that,
0: what do they say why people, when they kill themselves, how do they, how do they have an answer for that? So Daniel Dennett, who is one of the, deemed one of the four horsemen of atheism, they believe the human soul is just chemical uh, reaction of the mind. So they do not believe in an afterlife. So when, when we die, they believe uh, the chemical and biological functions are finished and there is no afterlife. They do not believe in the soul. So it's a soulless philosophy. Atheism is a soulless philosophy. In fact, it deforms, deforms humanity. How? If a person becomes an atheist, marriage of a man with a man becomes permitted. In fact, a man can even marry a donkey and it's happened. You must have heard in the United States person marrying a dog this has happened and it, de- it deforms even the features of a human because in Islam the, the religion of al fitra we have guidelines how we should be how we even dress there is a there are guidelines of our humanity but what atheists does atheism does is strip people of their humanity
1: when speaking to non-muslims is it not sufficient to quote the prophecies and the signs of the end of time
0: which are coming, now coming true. If that convinces them it is sufficient meaning you mentioned to them the Prophet foretold and prophesized X and Y and Z and it has come as such but if it doesn't convince them then you move on to other arguments.
1: What is the, what are the
0: main, the big differences between atheism and new
1: atheism?
0: So classical atheism was Uh, embedded in classical philosophy and the arguments were more philosophical some of the philosophers were more sincere like Anthony Flew who at the end of his life acknowledged the existence of a God so Anthony Flew all his life rejected God but when reaching 80 years old past 80 he accepted God so they were more sincere in their approach the later atheists are politicized they have a political agenda
1: uh, this is related to your topic. We were touching on the evil in the world. So, they, if an earthquake happens or there's suffering in the world, innocent children die. Um, how is that explainable? How do we explain that if some natural disaster
0: happens or, or even man-made? Uh, like in Palestine, Yemen and Kashmir. Um, how do we answer uh, that? The answer is very simple. The very definition of evil is taking something away which does not belong to you. So, you take the life of a person that life never belonged to you. You take away the wealth of a person, that wealth never belonged to you. But if everything belongs to Allah, He gives whom He wills and He takes away from whom He wills. Secondly, earthquakes happen, but 99% of the time the earth is still and tranquil. How much do we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that? So when 0.1% of the time when the earth is shaking and there is an earthquake, people lose hope. But what about the times when the earth is still and we are tranquil? How much do we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the perfections? Uh, thirdly, those children, they belong to Allah. This is why we say, For Allah is what he gave and for him is what he takes. And thir- uh, fourthly, when you judge this, you have to judge the complete picture you, like a novel. When you read a novel, you read the first part, it is sad, a tragedy occurs. You need to reach the end, where there is a happy ending. The happy ending will happen on the Day of Judgment. How does a person explain free will and destiny? So, (laughs) ilm of Allah is an attribute that uncovers things. It does not enforce things. So Allah knowing he will create Zaid and Zaid will choose to do bad Does not mean Allah has enforced his will upon Zaid What we what the Quran states It is not what you will but what Allah wills What that means is Allah has created human free will If he had not created human free will you would have no free will And then you exercise that free will Within the exercising of that free will, that is what human choice relates to. But Allah, knowing you will make that choice, does not mean He has enforced that choice upon you.
1: This question is uh, a bit long, but uh, just a bit saying, if we maintain Allah creates everything and all action, then when a a chemist, for example, reacts two chemicals together and creates a new one, how do we explain that? And the atheists sometimes call the the God of Gaps fallacy. You know, they they could recreate things ourselves, uh, but we say Allah creates everything. So how does our creation of things? So, firstly,
0: with regard to the God of the Gaps fallacy, what the God of the Gaps fallacy is, when science has not explained a physical material phenomenon, that what what we observe in our world, some. People they say God created it but that is not a scientific explanation and we acknowledge this as Muslims we say if the scientific explanation is void we know Allah created everything but that means there is a gap in the science and the science needs to fill the gap but what Muslim scientists understand from science and the discoveries of science Is what I refer to as signposts. So you may have two scientists who study the same subject, but one is a theist and one is an atheist. The theist sees the subject of science as a signpost to God, while the atheist sees it as haphazard, random, material action. Secondly, with regard to the second phase, uh, the segment of the question, which is The human being has mixed two chemicals and a third chemical is made This is human beings meddling with the already present materials What the Quran challenges humanity on is that if you indeed have Or you the false gods that you have set up have actual power Then create something from absolute nothingness Which is impossible how does one go about proving natural disposition to an atheist as many of them go to the extent of saying it does not even exist? So the denial of natural disposition, Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq عنه, He questioned an atheist He said to the atheist that if there is a person on a boat And the boat sinks Who does the person rely on? The atheist responded on the planks of wood the float on the planks of wood so Imam ja'far al-Sadiq said if the planks of wood are washed away and he's drowning absolutely who does he rely on who will save him and who does he call on this is when the natural disposition comes out in a modern example is an aeroplane you are traveling on an aeroplane the aeroplane starts diving downwards there are no life jackets you are told that there is no safety. Who does a person call out to in that position? That is where the natural disposition comes out. So sometimes they scream, Oh God! Oh my God! But why do they scream, Oh my god? Because then fitra is calling out.
1: How can we disprove the scientific truth around evolution?
0: So, with the theory of evolution, you see. The theory of evolution, science, or knowledge itself, can be divided into four categories. We have absolute certainty, we have near certainty, we have probability, and we have imagination. For us as Muslims, that which is absolute certainty can never contradict the Quran and the Sunnah or that which is near certainty, cannot contradict the Quran and the Sunnah but when something is probable but it clashes with that which is absolute certainty, that which is probable no longer remains probable. So the theory of evolution which entails human origins uh, similar to that of other species or common origin with other species as human evolution stands, it is not absolute, it is not absolute certainty, it is not even near certainty, because as you know, if you read and research you will find that every time they discover a fragment, the theory, the construct of the theory changes, simply because that's how science works, that the the imaging of the human migration from Africa to other places, changes by 100,000 years. So this entails in our epistemology, human evolution is not absolute certainty. Now because it's not absolute certainty, Richard Dawkins correctly states in the devil's chaplain that a hundred years from now, if you check the quote, the quote is in the book. He writes that from a hundred years from now, the evolution theory that we know today will undergo major change that it will be absolutely unrecognizable. Anything that falls into this in our schema of understanding, if it undergoes a major paradigm shift, human origins, it cannot reinterpret the Quran. It cannot what? Reinterpret the Quran. So you had someone from London again, Osama Hassan. He, he, he attempted to compatibilize evolution theory with the Quran and reinterpret the Quran in light of the evolution theory. But where was he wrong epistemologically? Evolution theory itself does not fall under absolute certainty. Therefore, it cannot interpret the Quran as a model. If the consensus of the scientists is on the evolution model, The model can be true regarding the animal kingdom or other aspects, it doesn't contradict Islam. But what will be found to be false as science progresses is that human origins cannot be explained by Darwinian evolution as it stands today. And God of the gaps fallacy would entail, we say, oh, God will fill the gap. But we are not saying this. We are saying to the scientists, continue researching, eventually you're Science will unfold that human origins are in fact from mud. Human origins are in fact from the earth.
1: This question has two questions but the, the topic is actually about if God is merciful, a good person who doesn't believe should be allowed to go to heaven. Or similarly, an agnostic who is a good person, Could they go to heaven, if not, why not? And there's an example in the other question which is a bit more uh, extreme. If a Muslim man kills an innocent disbelieving woman, the man will eventually go to heaven, but the woman will go to hell forever due to a disbelief, is this fair?
0: Okay, with regard to this question, this uh, question was asked in another form. Someone said, Mother Teresa, all her life she did charitable acts and Princess Diana all her life did charitable acts. Outwardly, they died as disbelievers. Then you have a Muslim who does evil deeds and eventually enters paradise. How do we respond to this? The response is very clear. A Muslim who does good deeds, but does the deed for other than Allah has no reward. So if you give 10 pound now to the Masjid in order that your name be pronounced on the mi- mic- announced on the microphone, but not for Allah is your attendee a 10 pound accepted with Allah. The answer is no. So Mother Teresa and Princess Diana, the good actions they did. Who did they do the actions for? Whoever they did the actions for they should seek the reward with them. Likewise with Muslims. Good deeds. The reward is with whom with Allah. So they should seek the reward with Allah. That's the first response. Secondly, the the question states that a Muslim man kills a good disbeliever. Who is there to determine what is good? Absolute good. As I mentioned, you may have a person is ostensibly a believer, but then dies as a uh, inwardly is a disbeliever. An example of this Al-Imam Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali gives in Al-Mustasfa. Is that a man is drowning and another man jump, jumps in to save him outwardly this is a good deed but inwardly the man only jumped in to save him in order that people may call him a hero that he saved him so outwardly this deed seems good or another example he jumps in to save him in the dark and leaves him So no one knows who saved him it seems good but he may be doing this because he thought to himself if i was drowning and no one came to save me how would i feel so therefore he jumps in and saves the man he didn't do the action for allah so therefore ultimate goodness can only be judged by allah this issue gets more subtle when you have for instance a child who is the child of a crackhead mother a mother who smokes drugs and takes cocaine and the child grows up with mental health issues and then he becomes a disbeliever and dies as a disbeliever. When he dies as a disbeliever, who can judge that child? Only Allah, because Allah has knowledge of every aspect of that person. So this question does not contradict our belief in any way. When
1: talking to an atheist, is the primary objective to call to God or to call them to Islam? And is an
0: atheist worse or behind a kuffar? Are worse than the So, uh, al kuffar in al Quran al Karim are divided into categories. You have al Mushrikun, and then you have uh, in within al Quran al Karim a category of al kuffar is atheists. So they are the same, but uh, when we call them to Allah, we are calling them to al Islam. Because al Islam, which means submission to the Divine, is the only deen which has preserved the divine revelation. The other religions, they have wrong concepts of the divine. So they have anthropomorphic beliefs, so they ascribe partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The only natural religion is Al Islam. So we call them to Al Islam as a whole. Now, last two
1: questions there. So, quick one why did Allah Jalla Jalla create humans in the first place?
0: I think I answered that by mentioning uh, that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala created us with a favor. What was that favor? Free will, mind, and life. But He demanded from us one thing: recognizing Him. So the verse where Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says He only created jinn and ins illa The interpretation the Mufassirun give liyarifun uh, in order to know Me is correct why by worshiping allah you increase your knowledge of allah by by increasing your worship you get to know allah and that is the purpose of the of life as for sins a person should never despair of their sins i mean once they have iman they should never despair of their sins because one bad deed counts as one bad deed but the angels do not record it for six hours in case you repent And and even if you do one good, if you intend one good deed, the angel writes down straight away one good deed and when you do the good deed it is multiplied by 10, Uh, it's increased to 10 and then multiplied to 700 and then one good deed erases one bad deed so never despair of the sins as long as you are Submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the meaning of al-Islam, that I submit to Allah.
1: Um, Last question here. Um, It says, why are atheists targeting Islam, or do you believe atheists are
0: targeting Islam more than other religions, and if so, why? Uh, This is incorrect. Muslims tend to debate Christians more than any other faith. Because Christians are the closest group to us and then it moves on to other religions i think atheists are, are at the tail end do, do you think they target uh, muslims more than or islam more
1: than other religions they
0: target muslims more because of sharia law because of the sharia law and especially now with the defeat of america in afghanistan sharia law will be targeted more so because of sharia law and this is why in chapter 6 i cover sharia law in depth <laughs>
2: يا رسول سلام عليك يا حبيب